Welcome to the Finding Sustainability podcast. This insight episode is taken from episode four of the podcast with Jeremy Caradonna. Jeremy holds a PhD in the history of scientific, environmental, and political thought and teaches environmental studies and human dimensions of climate change at the University of Victoria in Canada. He is also the author of the book Sustainability, a History, published by Oxford University Press in 2014. In the Insight clip, Jeremy discusses indigenous versus modern notions of sustainable societies. He also discusses the rise of sustainability thinking in Europe. We also touch on early links between environmental degradation and human well-being and the link between economic thought and sustainability thinking. Enjoy. My method is about saying, where did sustainability come from? Where did this where did this concept come from? And it turns out it has this long history that goes back to the 18th century. Yeah, right. Well, I can see where you get that logic from where you think, you know, as the advent of kind of sustainability has come into the present moment, that only then do we look back on the past. And one of the things that I was interesting, which I thought was 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 an interesting reflection at the beginning of your book was, you know, why start at the 1700s? Well, you know, why start in this kind of post enlightenment European setting? instead of looking back at some of the more sustainable cultures over time. And I, th- and I thought one of the reflections there, which was interesting, was that you only need a sustainability movement in an unsustainable society. And is that somehow the starting place for the book? Yes, it is. And I'll, I'm also writing this book with the realization that Jared Diamond and Joseph Tainter and others have done really good work on indigenous cultures and on non-Western cultures to understand what they were doing well and and issues that they had with living unsustainably. So, you know, I've just here uh, criticized their methodological approach, but I I do think it takes all all kinds. And there are different valid approaches to understanding anthropology and history. But if you think, if you take a look at at the work of, of, for instance, Jared Diamond, who think about guns, germs, and steel, and, and probably more appropriately collapse, I don't know if you want to call it structuralism or whatever you want to call it, but he's particularly interested in extrapolating lessons from different world cultures and 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 cobbling it together into a grand theory that can be applied to different locations. That's, for me, much more what social science is involved in. It always feels foreign to me as someone who comes from the humanities because I, I just want to pick that apart and say, well, aren't the Anasazi and, and the... And the uh, the Vikings of Greenland and the Maya, aren't these vastly different societies? How can we, is there really a grand theory that ties them all together? And, you know, since that book has come out, he's, he's you know, a lot of criticism has been leveled against him for making things fit into his model. But anyway, the, the point being is that <clears throat> I didn't want to write a history that, I didn't want to write a book that was about the inherent sustainability of indigenous cultures, even though I believe that that is, the case. And I've studied that subject much more extensively since I wrote this book. My interest was in historicizing the sustainability movement. Mm-hmm. And I see the roots of the sustainability movement in early modern Europe. And as, as you just noted, and as I noted in the book, it is a reaction against realization that the, the path of industrialized society was unsustainable. Right. You know, I live here in British Columbia in, uh, amongst the Coast Salish, that's the indigenous people here, and I have a lot of contact with them, and I've, I've gained a real appreciation for their, their systems. Because unlike many of the people in <clears throat> pre-contact North America, the Salish were agriculturalists, or they engaged in what I would call ecosystem cultivation. That is to say, they actually grew food in a way that could perhaps be amenable to a definition, a westernized definition of agriculture. 
they were harvesting a bulb called camas that grew around Gary Oak trees. And they, through controlled burns and, and other forms of cultivation, they grew their own food. Anyway, the point being is that they did that for thousands of years. That's a sustainable culture. Is there, is there lessons to be learned there? Absolutely. But that's not, they didn't play any direct role in the sustainability movement that took shape in the 1980s, in the 1990s. That comes out of the Western world. And it's the Western world holding a mirror up against itself. So for me, they're just two different stories. But it's not to say that there isn't a lot to be learned from sustainable indigenous cultures. That's just not the book that I was writing. Yeah. So when I think about the, the structure of the introduction of the book, where, where do you think in Europe? I and mean, what are those actual events or the key thinkers who are, who are kind of giving a push to this movement or this way of thinking? Well, one of the key thinkers that I've come across is Hans Karl von Karlowitz, who, was, uh, who coined the term Nachhaltigkeit in German, which translates pretty well into sustainability. And uh, as I write in the book, he's in charge of the mining industry in Saxony. And Saxony was a mining powerhouse in the early 18th century, Saxony being a state, constituent state in the Holy Roman Empire. And Karlovitz was, was a part of the social elite. He was part of the aristocracy. And he began to realize that there was an unsustainable use of woodland in central and eastern Germany, or what we might call Germany today, the empire. And so he ended up writing this forestry treatise, <clears throat> even though he was technically involved in mining. And that's because mining was heavily reliant upon wood. And he's building upon <clears throat> the work of some other uh, thinkers and writers who are working on, on forestry in the late 17th and early century, early 18th century, including John Evelyn and Colbert in, uh, in France. So what I found in my own research is that the origin of the sustainability movement is very much related to a realization that woodland is declining in the 18th century, by the early 18th century, and that that's having a multifaceted, complex impact on society and economy. So from the point of view of Karlovitz, the cost of wood was going up, and it was just becoming scarce. And that was having an impact on mining because, uh, you know, the charcoal was being used in uh, forges, for instance, to smelt and to refine various metals and ores and also you needed timber to hold up mine shafts and that sort of thing and so he realized that it was crucial for the continuation of the industries that he was overseeing so he became interested in forestry so he began studying roman forestry there you know the extant treatises from antiquity he's also studying john evelyn and colbert and you have <clears throat> what begins to take shape is this kind of statist approach to woodland management if you want to call it that because evelyn and colbert and Karlovitz, they're all social elites. They're all particularly interested in state power. They're not particularly interested in generalized social well-being, even though they do occasionally talk about that. What they're interested in is the power of the state. And for Colbert and Evelyn, a lot of that time, that has to do with the ability of maritime empires to have a sufficient supply of, let's say, oaks, which were hugely important for building men of war and other kinds of warships. But um, you can criticize them for that for sure because they're not particularly interested in the plight of, say, the peasantry around access to wood. But there, so there's this beginning of a realization, this inkling that resources have been mismanaged and that nature is not a cornucopia, that there are limits to growth, that there are limits to consumption, and that those limits are going to begin to have an impact. In fact, we're already beginning to have an impact on the well-being of elites and the well-being of the state. 
So that's where I see like the early inklings of thinking about sustainability is this realization on the part of elites that the conventional path is unsustainable. It's interesting to me when you talked about how that's linked so much to this well-being aspect so early. I think when, when I think about traditional notions of the environment, especially going back into to, to Europe at that time, it, it was more about degradation. But there actually and, and we, there's so much discourse now about the link to well-being in the environment. But did you you think that that was actually a part of, of the thinking at the time? I think that that becomes a part of the thinking definitely by the 1750s and 1760s. I mean, you mentioned the first book I wrote. The first book I wrote is on public essay competitions during the Enlightenment. And just very briefly, what those are about, they were hosted by the academies, the academy, and they touched on a whole range of subjects. I couldn't even begin to describe them right now. But a lot of those subjects had to do with social, environmental, and political well-being. They were about legal and political reform. They're about social reform. They're about environmental degradation and its impact on well-being. And I came across some amazing material when I was working on my first book out in the provincial archives. And I used some of that material here because one of the things I found is, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but there was at least 20 competitions, maybe more. I wrote some articles about this on, uh, on forestry and on the lack of access to wood in the 18th century. So there's a whole bunch of competitions in the 1760s, 1770s, 1780s, in which the academies are putting it out there to the public and saying, you know, our, our little region in, in southwestern France, wherever, wherever the competition is being held, has been denuded of wood. What should we do about this? What are the impacts of this? And you have fascinating essays being written by people from, I wouldn't say all social classes, but I mean, you have you have kind of provincial hacks, you have elites, you have people who are, who are actually involved in forestry. I mean, you had to have a certain level of literacy, right? So you can't say it's the poorest of the poor, but you have a pretty good cross-section of society involved in these, in these, in these essays, in these competitions. And essayist after essayist says, we have mismanaged our forests, we have clear-cutted them, the cost of wood has risen, the, uh, the access to firewood is increasingly difficult, costs are going up, this is affecting the poor, people can't cook their meals, they can't heat their homes, it's affecting industry in a whole, a whole variety of ways, from the charcoal industry to the silk industry in southwest France that relied upon mulberry trees, etc., there's this realization that resources have been mismanaged. So, and some of them are very much speaking the language of conservation. In fact, they use the word conservation. I mean, I'm always hesitant. I mean, again, I'm trained as a cultural historian to be very careful about assuming that our worldview is anything like the worldview in the past. But it's hard not to connect the dots to realizations that we're having now with what some of the people in the 18th century were beginning to realize. You know, one, you know, one of the other parts of this book, as you go through this history in Europe, is how that kind of translates into economic thinking, um, yeah. particularly in the UK and some of the UK thinkers. How do you view that transition into kind of industrialization and economic thinking? Did, did that movement kind of carry over from some of the French and the German thinkers? Yeah, it did. I, I think that, gosh, how to put that into the form of a narrative. Uh, one of the other realizations I really had in writing this book, and it's become a major interest of mine since is the question of economic growth. And I talk about this, as, as you saw later on in the book, is that we live in a world that is defined by a pursuit of growth. We want to grow. We, we assume that economic growth is inherently a good. Economic growth means more economic activity. That means more economic transactions. That means more capital. That means more well-being. And what's fascinating is that 
that discourse begins really in the 18th century, the idea of growth as an object of the economy, as the purpose of the economy. Prior to Adam Smith and, and the physiocrats in France, no one is particularly interested in growth. Growth is just not even, it's not even a concept. But it becomes a concept with this new economics that develops in this period. But what I find is fascinating is that you go back to the original sources. None of these people are saying that the economy should grow indefinitely or that it is even possible for it to grow infinitely. And then if you look from Adam Smith onward all the way up to the present, running parallel to the whole discourse of economic growth and capitalism is this, these parallel criticisms of it, often from within what we would today call capitalism, not just like the socialists. But I mean, we're talking about people like Mill, John Stuart Mill who's absolutely a capitalist and uh, part of classical economics. But he's also a, a vociferous critic of the notion of growth, of endless growth. So I thought that was also very instructive and helps to give and helps to historicize the movement I'm a part of. If you want to call it the economics of sustainability, you can call it that. I'm also associated with a movement called degrowth, which is, has actually picked up quite a bit of steam in Europe. And, you know, I've spent a lot of my time reading the works of Schumacher and Herman Daly and a lot of these, these thinkers who are still within the realm of capitalism, but they're critical of growth. And so I think that that is absolutely a very big part of the story. Thanks again to all of you for listening and supporting this podcast. The show notes, which include more information about our guests and links to the material mentioned in the episodes, can be found on most podcast players or on our website. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play, and it can also be streamed from our website. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, where we would be happy to connect and continue these discussions. Thanks again.